Make your way, if you will, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. As I've shared with our church on a number of occasions during my seminary days, I led a ministry to students at the University of Minnesota. My endeavors took me many times across that bridge that spans the east and the west banks at the U of M on the Minneapolis campus. And there's this enclosed corridor that runs the length of the uh, bridge, very lengthy bridge. I suppose that's to keep people who aren't from Minnesota and studying there at the U of M <laughs> coming back to school if they're there in the middle of the winter, but uh, there's this, in, this corridor, this enclosed uh, hallway that runs down the middle of that bridge. And it was something of an education to read, as you can imagine, the writings and the graffiti and all the things that were said on the walls of that bridge as you walked for what seemed to be three miles across that river. Most of the statements, I think, were probably political in orientation. Some of them expressed some things that you really didn't want to think about. But there was one that stood out, and in my mind, the only one that I really remember from those days so long ago now. But it was scratched, as it were, in blood, in red paint. And it said this, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. I was really struck by that phrase, that uh, old Negro spiritual uh, title, but that someone would take paint and walk out across that bridge and feel that they needed to write that is amazing. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, an agonized cry of an orphan soul, I would imagine. And one spring day on that very same bridge, I met just such a man. As part of my endeavors there, I would hand out literature from time to time, and I had written this uh, piece of uh, this document, a track, and I gave it out, and it talked about how to find purpose in life, and I handed this to this man, and uh, there was this very awkward silence. There was a look of disdain on his eyes. He just like he looked right through me, but he could not even articulate his objection to what I was giving him. In a very awkward way, we kind of just parted and uh, it sort of sent a chill through me uh, to see this man eye to eye. Now this is a campus of, at that time, I think 60,000 students. Sometime later, I'm walking on this campus, this massive place, and I hand the same track to the same guy. Different place, different location. Well, this time he found his tongue. And he had been thinking, apparently, for a while, and he let me know what he thought about me telling him what the purpose of life was. And we went on in some fruitless conversation for a few minutes, and he was quite angry with me. And finally, I just thought, maybe I can turn this the other way. And I said, well, will you express to me what you believe is the purpose of life? He became very quiet. And he hung his head, he was sitting on some steps going up to a building, Northrop Auditorium, and he, he hung his head, and there was this long pause. And then he spoke honestly, quietly, sort of hollow words, and he said, I have no idea. I have no idea what the purpose of life is. An orphan soul, an orphan rudderless 
soul, without purpose or hope. Another student said to me over lunch one day a phrase I've never forgotten, something along these lines. He said, I have no reason to get up in the morning. I have a good job. I'm studying here. My family is extremely wealthy. I have everything. I have life by the tail. But I have no reason to get up in the morning. I have no purpose. Orphan souls, or as Jesus might put it, sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was in tune with this desperate state of affairs that so often pervades in people's hearts, wasn't he? Remember Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is going about ministering. He's preaching the gospel, restoring sight to the blind, speech to the dumb, and mobility to the crippled. And God's word hones in there as Jesus is touching people and it gives us a picture into the soul of Christ. And it says in that passage, verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You've heard undoubtedly the words of Nelson and McHugh, who expressed it so well in the song, People Need the Lord. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes, empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. And often as I hear that song, I think of walking on that bridge across the University of Minnesota campus and seeing all the phrases, all the slogans, all the statements, and seeing in the eyes of the people who passed, as we see in the eyes today, wherever we go, people heading who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides the silent cries that only Jesus hears. No matter how vehemently our world resists the notion, we are all vulnerable sheep who need a spiritual shepherd. The problem is our inherent vulnerability and need for spiritual guidance, nurture, and protection makes us susceptible to the ravages of false shepherds who can wreak untold spiritual havoc in people's hearts and lives. They can lead a young man to know what the purpose of life is not. It is not Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It is not to follow God and live your life for Him. But then they give Him no answer for what it is. And that leads us to John chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking at John chapter 10 most specifically, but first of all here in John 9, John 9 records events on a Sabbath day when Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. Following this healing, the Pharisees interrogate this poor man, motivated less by genuine interest in his healing and much more out of antipathy for Jesus Christ. They grill the man. I mean, think about it. He's been born blind. He's now a mature man and he is given healing by Jesus Christ. He's able to see for the first time in his life and all they can do is grill him, ask him hard questions, put him on the spot, beat him up in front of their council. Verse 25 of this ninth chapter, he replied about Jesus who has healed him, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Just straight truth, straightforward. You can say what you want about this Jesus, I just know I can see now. 
Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They already asked that question. And so he answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They threw him out. These self-proclaimed spiritual shepherds of Israel expelled the man from the temple. This is where you were to come to meet God. This is where you were to come to pray. This is where you were to come to give thanks to the Lord. And this man had something to thank God for. And they throw him out. Acting in the role of spiritual shepherd, Jesus finds the man, he ministers to him, and he reveals that he is Messiah. Now, John chapter 10 follows on this scene, and I think it's very important to put the two together and to realize, is this not profound, that John 10 follows John 9. But there is a direct connection here of what has just happened. These spiritual shepherds of Israel have thrown this man out of the temple for being healed by Jesus. Jesus ministers to him, and now Jesus teaches. And he has something to say here that's connected with this event. It is this context, in this context, that Jesus makes a most spectacular claim. Now, it will come across very cautiously at first, or that is almost cryptically. But he makes, first of all, this bold claim that there is only one spiritual shepherd of souls. Beginning at verse 1. He establishes, first of all, there's only one true shepherd of souls. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. I tell you the truth, he says. This is a, a phrase meaning pay careful attention. This is a profound statement. I tell you the truth. He who does not, not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber. Well, anyone living in that culture knew that. This is patently obvious. The sheep pen, a low-lying wall made out of brick, homemade brick or rock generally, was encompassed a small area that, where the sheep would pass in, and there was one little door. And both shepherd and sheep would pass through that one little door. Now these closures almost never had a roof over them. If they did, it was only over part of the pen. And so obviously only the shepherd walks through the gate. If someone is climbing over, then you know that they are a thief and a robber. Anyone hearing Jesus say these things would have understood Gaining access to that pen comes through the door, not over the wall. If we in our culture see somebody entering through a basement window in the middle of the night, we suspect something's not right. 
If you see a man steal a woman's purse on the street and take off running, you can be sure he's not doing her a favor. He's not running an errand for her. He's running away with her money. And if you see in this culture a sh- at someone climbing over the wall into the sheep pen, that's not the way it works. And you can know that that's a thief and a robber because they're not coming through the door. The man, verse 2, who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Everyone would understand what he means. Now, verse 3, the watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, you might be thinking here, if there's a low wall there and it's, I'm on the backside of the sheep pen, why not just climb over the wall? Well, what he's talking about here, though, is protocol for the pastoral culture. And this is the situation in which you have a watchman hired by several shepherds. They all put their sheep into the pen. There's one watchman, and so protocol is you go through the watchman at the door. You don't pass into that sheep pen over the wall or you're a thief. You gain access by talking to the watchman at the door. That's verse 3. He opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. So here's the picture, this community pen. The shepherd now walks, presents himself to the porter, walks into the pen, and he then makes a call to the sheep. They listen to his voice. He calls his sheep by name and he leads them out. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, that means there are other sheep that are in the pen, but by using this unique guttural call to his sheep, they all hear the shepherd's voice. They know who their shepherd is. They come out from among the other flocks at the gate, and they go out one by one through the gate. And the shepherd, what does he do? He leads them. Verse 4, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Sheep, remember, are not driven, they are led. And the shepherd's voice is what brings them out, and it's only the shepherd's voice. Verse 5 But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Trained sheep will not follow a stranger's call. In fact, no sheep will follow anyone's call until they learn that this is the call of their shepherd. They will respond to that voice, but not to any other. So Jesus stresses the point that there is only one true shepherd for the flock. Now at this point, everybody is saying, obviously... We all know this. Every shepherd has his sheep. He teaches them his call. They hear his voice. Obviously, there's only one shepherd for the flock. Patently obvious. But Jesus is speaking, of course, figuratively here. He has a deeper meaning in mind, and his hearers fail to grasp that meaning. Verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So we need now, as we read this teaching of Jesus, to realize there's a meaning here that goes deeper than simply what he's saying. There's only one shepherd of the sheep. Very clear picture, but what does Jesus mean by it? He means that one sole shepherd is himself. And he begins at verse 7 now to make that plain. Verse 7, therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Now he mixes up here a little bit the picture. Verses 1 and 2 depict a night scene in the village where the sheep go to the watchman at the common uh, pen. Here in verses 
uh, or verses 3 and 5 picture the sheep taking, the shepherd taking his flock out of that pen. But now as we come to this place, we see the, the picture changing somewhat. Jesus saying, I am the gate. Now the watchman was the gate. How's now Jesus the shepherd the gate? Now the picture is out in the fields. And out there's a rustic pen where Jesus or the shepherd would serve as the doorway. It would actually lay across this open entrance into the pen and would become the gate for the sheep. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So Jesus subtly says he is that only shepherd when he says I'm the gate for the sheep. Now in verse 8 he begins to become more specific, saying that others who have come are thieves and robbers. He refers here to the false teachers and the false messiahs, to anyone, I think, who pretends to be the answer to the spiritual health of people's souls. Anyone who has come before and says, I am the answer to your greatest needs, I will satisfy your soul's longings. Those people, says Jesus, are thieves and they're robbers. But God's flock, you notice there in verse 8, do not listen to them. God's flock listens to the one true shepherd. There's only one true spiritual shepherd. That shepherd is Jesus Christ. But we then need to ask, what kind of shepherd is he? There are people who have one set of parents or one parent. That's who their parent is. That does not mean that's a good parent. Jesus says, I am the only shepherd of the sheep. That does not say anything about what kind of shepherd he is. So Jesus picks that up beginning at verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And we find here now from this phrase and following several references to the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. He is one who saves the sheep. Through Jesus, the only true shepherd, we gain access to God's fold. And entering into God's fold through Jesus, we are saved. We are secured in His fold. That is the old message and will be filled out throughout this book and throughout the Gospel accounts that Jesus takes on the sin of His people lays down his life for them, and rises from the dead. Through that message, we are saved. Through faith in that message. He saves his sheep. He Secondly, the middle of verse 9, he nourishes his sheep. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Coming in and going out for literal sheep, this pictures the ability to leave the pen to gain nurture and to return to the pen for safety. For God's sheep, this figure of speech does not mean that we will be preserved from all trouble and danger and trial. It does mean that in the midst of trial, we can have souls that are spiritually satisfied and well-fed. So he nurtures, he saves the sheep, he nurtures the sheep. Thirdly, he enlivens the sheep, verse 10. He gives them life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy the false religionists who exchange grace for human works, to the family experts who exchange biblical doctrines for democratic parenting, to the self-esteem philosophers who preach self-orientation over God-orientation, to the educational experts and judicial authorities who want to rewrite history and redefine morality, 
to the popular purveyors of illicit sex and materialistic greed. You pile them all together as they speak to the souls of this world. All they do is kill and destroy and maim and hurt in the end. Why is that? Well, that is because we're Christians, and we need to say that the Christian doctrine is the only true doctrine, because if we insist on that true doctrine, we can get more people to join our churches and make more money. That's the only real answer to it all. Why this exclusive statement that we continue to find in God's Word? Is it just about Christians wanting more influence and wanting more control? I think the answer, of course, is very different than that. I would say it this way, and I say it briefly but with some thought, if you'll think with me. Those who come to speak to the soul do not understand the nature of the human soul. Those who come apart from Christ, who come apart from the truth of God's Word and begin to tell us what is true about us, cannot do so when they don't understand human nature. They do not know, then, what brings peace to the human heart. They do not know what the soul is. They do not know what is wrong with it or how to fix it. And so their ideas and their agendas are always destructive. They may be helpful in the short term, but they will always bite in the end. And yet with regularity, people suck up the philosophies these soul thieves peddle as truth and then wonder why life is so miserable. They don't know what the human heart is. They don't know what is wrong with the human heart, and therefore they cannot fix it. Jesus alone is the true shepherd of the soul. I'm not going to pick on one person by any means, but just to draw a picture, I think, that will help us to conceive this. You will find in public television from time to time or whatever source, I don't really know. I'm sure there's probably videos and tapes and the like, but once in a while I've seen someone stand in front of this massive audience and teach for several hours about how to get your finances in control. I've never listened to any one of those things entirely, but I know that goes on, right? And here's a person standing there with charisma and with wisdom, helping all of these people get their checkbooks in order and figure out how to run their finances. And there's never a word I would guarantee, though I've never listened to it all, I guarantee it, I'll stick my neck out here and say there's never a word discussed about what is twisted in the human heart that leads us to love money. And what is twisted in the human heart that leads us to love it more than things that we should love more and therefore to make choices that bury us. It's all about, aren't you all really good people? Let's find within and with a little bit of wisdom from me how we can get everything all straightened out and live a wonderful life free of all economic concern. That's a thief. That's a robber. I'm not saying that there's no truth there. I'm not saying there can't be any help there in that discussion. But when that discussion goes free of God, it's a false teaching. It's false doctrine. And you can fill in the blanks with any number of other purveyors of soul satisfaction that never come back to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is saying here something very exclusive, something very narrow-minded, something very restrictive. He is saying, I am the only shepherd of the soul. And anyone else who claims to speak to the hard issues of your soul is a robber and a thief who has only the intention of destroying. That's kind of thick. I mean, that's very exclusive and very straightforward. But notice what Jesus then adds. Verse 10. Has he come to make our life miserable? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life. And this, in the original text, reads very emphatically. I, I have come that they may have life. They, as a reference, I think, to his sheep. Jesus did not come to maim or to hurt or to traumatize us. He did not come to dry up our soul. Jesus came as the good shepherd to feed us and enrich us, to fill our hearts with joy and satisfaction and peace. That is his stated mission, verse 10, is it not? I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly to the full. Well, that's just a feel-good message from Jesus' angle, right? Any psychologist can take you through these lines and say, everything's okay, it's all going to be right. That's just Jesus doing the same thing. I've come to make your life so filled with joy. I don't think that this is a feel-good message from Jesus. This man is soon going to be hanging on a cross, and he knows it. I think what this is from Jesus is a wake-up call for all of us. It's a call to consider that in Christ there is a joyful banquet for the soul. And if that joy is lacking, the problem is not with our shepherd. The problem is not with the people around us. The problem is not with the circumstances that we are facing. He is the soul's shepherd who has come to deliver abundance and joy, and peace, and satisfaction in the midst of all of the difficulty. I've come to give life to the full, the phrase says. Abundant life, overflowing, excessive life. The life of God enlivening the soul and giving it a joy that nothing can quench. Do you possess that life? We talked about the... Uh, Philip mentioned this morning in the adult class the martyrs of the Baptist faith and other faiths as well. But we just were looking at that angle. Those martyrs who went before, kicked out of churches, despised, no money, no status, so many difficulties. Why do they keep doing it when what it ends in is imprisonment and execution? Because there's a greater joy in serving Christ than in any joy that this world has to offer. And they continued to give their lives because of what they found in Christ. Do we have that same joy? Do we have that same satisfaction from Christ? For some of us, I think that is a question that we need to answer in these terms. I need to seek that. I'm not experiencing that. There might be some who've never even tasted it. And I say to you that Jesus is the sole shepherd. He's the only one. Come to him. 
He saves his sheep. He nourishes his sheep. He enlivens his sheep. Fourthly, he defends his sheep with tenacious loyalty. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The word here is not simply, I am the righteous shepherd. I do good things. But the word here is, I am a shepherd who is uh, beautiful, attractive, exquisite, excellent. I'm that kind of a shepherd. In every way, Christ is valuable and excellent and beautiful. He is, for the human soul, everything a shepherd could possibly be to a sheep. But on what does this bold claim rest in verse 11? I am the good shepherd. This is what it rests on. Here it is. Here's his defense. I give my life for the sheep. There is no other shepherd of the soul, no false shepherd that can stand up and say that. I give my life for the sheep. There's a bunch of them that we could stand up in a long line that would circle the earth that say, I want your life for mine. I'll take your life away. But Jesus is the shepherd who says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Shepherds were responsible to defend their flocks from predators. And Jesus, in like manner, gives his life for the sheep. It's a bold claim, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. There's a stark contrast here drawn out in verses 12 and 13. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In contrast to the true shepherd, the hired hand lacks genuine concern for the welfare of the sheep. All is fine as long as all is well. All is fine as long as the money is flowing in. All is fine as long as you are making me popular. The false shepherds, that's their approach. All is fine as long as all is well. But will the shepherd lay down his life for the sheep when the pressure is on? There's the hired hand. Sun dips behind the hill. The remote field is suddenly cast in the shadows. The day is spent. He tries to get the sheep in the pen. He's frustrated. They don't really know him very well. He doesn't know them very well. He struggles at the job. The sheep are uneasy. The daylight is fading. And frustrated and cold and hungry and self-pitying, the hired hand says, I can't wait till this is over. Then without warning, in his peripheral vision, he sees movement and turns to see what he has hoped never to see, the glowing eyes of a wolf streaking across the field toward his flock. And in that split second of time, the hireling makes a decision. He panics and he runs. And it's easy pickings for the wolf this night. While the sheep scatter and are dying, while bedlam reigns, the hireling is there behind a rock, crouched in fear. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then what he is saying with that is, I will never do that. That is exactly what I am not. I care for my flock to the degree that I stand in the way of any predator and I lay down my life for the flock. 
This is what we have as God's people. This is our shepherd. You can't buy such a shepherd. There is no other spiritual shepherd like that. There's no substitute. He is the good shepherd. If you put your hope in, you seek your security from friends or money or popularity or drugs or the things of this world, you seek wisdom from worldly philosophy, satisfaction in sin, a ritualistic religion. You name it, when trouble comes, you will be left alone to fend for yourself. Think about it. What happens when the money runs out and your friends are the drug dealers? The gambling establishment. They've got no more time for you. What happens when your money runs out and you have to go back to the psychologist? All suddenly they don't have any more interest in what's really going on in your life. You get snared in suffering and the world's religions and the philosophers will slink away into the night with no word of hope or meaning if they don't, in fact, stand up and condemn you. Remember what these religious teachers said to the man born blind? You were born in sin. Why were you blind? Because you were born in sin. Get out of our temple. You get pregnant, get sick, and the fornicators and adulterers will abandon you. Get seized in the clutches of tough times and the false shepherds slink away in fear. But here's the truth to which we need to cling. Jesus will never treat you that way. He is not that kind of shepherd. You go through the valley of the shadow of death and he will be there. You go through deep and troubled waters, and He will be there. You get attacked by a spiritual wolf that is bigger and meaner and stronger than you are, and He will be there. Whether it's an attack from disease, the loss of a loved one, the betrayal of a friend, the ravages of temptation, financial trouble or confusion or failure, He will be there. He stands against any predator that comes. And if that, if he is, as he is between you and that predator, he lays down his life to take it on. He saves, he nourishes, he enlivens, he defends. He relates to his sheep with loving affection. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. We have here intimate knowledge of the sheep. I know them. That is, it's indicating affection and appreciation. And I am known by my sheep. If anyone belongs to Jesus, they know him. They know his voice, and although they may wander from time to time, they know who he is, and they have a genuine relationship with him. Verse 14, I know them, they know me. Not everyone belongs to his flock, however, verse 15, just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Let's go back to verse 15 there for a minute. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's an amazing phrase, is it not? That's the kind of relationship that Jesus has with his sheep. He equates it to the knowledge between father and son. That's the kind of knowledge that I have with my flock. I know them, and they know me. 
Is that not an encouraging thought this morning? He knows all about you, and yet he loves you. He relates to the flock with loving affection. We see his knowledge of the sheep in verses 14 and 15. This is why he lays down his life for them. In verse 16, we see his effective gathering of the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Their identity here, who are these sheep that are not of his sheep pen? It's probably a reference to the Gentiles who will come through Christ. And Gentiles and Jews will be united in the same flock. But certainly it's also true individually of individuals who come to Him that are not in the sheep pen. They're not in His flock yet. Now notice they do belong to Christ. They're His sheep, but yet they're not in His flock. Jesus had at His very heart's orientation and evangelistic zeal to bring other people to the place where they join the flock. He will do everything necessary to bring them into the fold, and so should we. As the Apostle Paul put it, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. They're his sheep. I go out and bring them in to his fold. We see the unity then that is produced here. All sheep in one fold, the uniting of Jew and Gentile in one body in the church. There will be many Jews who are sheep in this fold. There will be many who don't, do not listen to the Savior's call. There will be many Gentiles who enter this fold. There will be many who will not. But the voice Christ's sheep hear, the voice that his sheep hear is his voice. I think that is a very important spot to land on and to consider. They hear His voice. Now, Some will call this simplistic, and there's much other scripture to support it. But that says that there's a growing number of even evangelical people today in the evangelical orbit who are wrong. They are claiming you can hear other voices and still have Jesus as your shepherd. I think this simple statement here, if there was none other, puts that to rest. They hear His voice. They hear it, and it's His voice. That's very consistent with what we find here, is it not? Verse 9, He says, My sheep enter by Me. Verse 14, My sheep know Me. Verse 16, My sheep hear My voice. And it fits so much else of what we could put here. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4. In John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that except through me, we could say, comes by people who never hear about Jesus, but yet they're coming through him. But Jesus says here, my sheep hear my voice. They hear it. There's troubling things being said. And I say this not to throw any rocks, but to say the truth as we need to say it. Some time ago, Billy Graham, being interviewed by Robert Schuller, said this. I just quote what he said. I think that everybody that loves or knows Christ, whether they are conscious of it or not, are members of the body of Christ. 
God is calling people out of the world for His name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they have been called by God. They may not know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something they do not have. And they turn to the only light they have, and I think they are saved. I'm waiting to meet the first person in my life that does not know they need something they don't have. Everyone who's honest knows there's something missing in here. The problem with this counsel that is given to us is that God says something very differently. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says, There is no one who seeks God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And Jesus says here in this passage, My sheep hear my voice. They don't simply know that there's some emptiness and some need there. They hear the voice of Jesus and they follow his voice. So that there is one flock with one shepherd, not one flock with numerous shepherds. I think at verse 17 there is a subtle shift as we move to a response to what Jesus has said. And there will be a response in this assembly here today. As there is any time that the gospel of Jesus Christ is communicated. A response to this good shepherd. There's only one shepherd, Jesus establishes. I am that shepherd. And now we find the response. First of all, God's unequivocal approval of Jesus. It comes in verse 17. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. We see the approval declared here in verse 17. My Father loves me. The Father approves the work of the Son. Specifically, the Father loves the Son. Why? Verse 17, because I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. For Je- now, his readers don't understand what that means. But, I should say, that those who are hearing him don't understand what that means. But for Jesus, his death was always directly connected to his resurrection. I lay my life down, I die, that I might rise from the dead. The two always went together. There was no thought on the part of Jesus ever that he would die and remain in the tomb. He always said, in some way, hidden or straightforward, hidden here, I die that I might take my life up again, but I lay it down, and that gains the Father's approval. God is pleased with that. This approval is delineated in verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Because He loved the sheep, Jesus willingly took our place. He willingly laid down His life. Now, crucifixion seems to be the reason why He died. That's the means of death. But the cause of death was not the hatred of Jesus' crucifiers. It was His own choice to lay down His life for His people. And for making this sacrifice, the Father loves the Son. You see that at the end of verse 18. This command I receive from my Father. That is, there is obedience in Jesus that brings about the Father's pleasure. Jesus is acting in strict accordance with the Father's wishes. As one commentator puts it, He decides as He does because He desires to please His Father. 
He and his Father are one in their will to save the world. So God the Father responds to the Son with pleasure. The Father loves the Son for his sacrificial obedience. And let's think about that for a moment as we consider how the Father is responding to the Son and what glories are in that truth that the Father finds pleasure in the Son for this obedience, this act of self-sacrifice. But when we come back down to earth, the assessment is divided. Verse 19, a split response. At these words, the Jews were again divided. There's a negative appraisal in verse 20. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Jesus' words are either radical truth or they're depraved insanity. Every once in a while, there are people who come to our church and they basically tell me this, that I'm a raving lunatic. And I, actually, I like that a lot better than nice sermon pastor and out they go and call you a raving lunatic somewhere else maybe. But that is where it's at with Jesus Christ. He's either nuts or he's telling the truth. He's standing here saying, there's only one shepherd for the human soul in all of the universe, and I am that shepherd. Now, he's either right, and so he's giving us a gracious word, or he's crazy. And so, in this divided response, many say he's demon-possessed. In other words, those, there, there's no one out there in the audience hearing what Jesus is saying and saying, Oh, I, I know that Jesus is a good guy. He's a good teacher. Let's watch his life and watch how he leads, leads, leads his life because we can know this is just a kind of a good guy. He's wrong about this thing about being God and he's wrong about this idea that he'll rise from the dead and he's wrong about the idea that he's the only shepherd of the soul. But he's a good guy, isn't he? There's nobody out there doing that. That just happens hundreds and thousands of years after Jesus is dead, that anybody comes up with that notion. He's a lunatic, is what they say. Or, verse 21, others say, now listen to this. It's where the whole thing comes back together. These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Why are they saying that? This takes us right back to John chapter 9, doesn't it? What Jesus' miracle was showing when he took a man who was blind from birth and he healed him, giving him sight, this was the proof that everything Jesus taught was the truth. You find no one in Scripture anywhere arguing that Jesus did not raise people from the dead or did not heal them. So we've said numerous times, even in the early centuries, the critics of Jesus continued to call him a magician or something of the sort. They never denied that miracles took place. The issue was always who was the power behind it. But Jesus' miracle here of this man born blind was intended for people to see, I am who I say that I am. When I say I'm the shepherd of every soul, that I am the only source of soul satisfaction, you've got to back that up. And he did, over and over and over again. 
here healing a blind man. So let's think through it just very briefly. There's only one shepherd of the soul. That person is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect shepherd who saves, enlivens, nourishes, defends, loves his sheep with an everlasting love, laying down his life for them. And so we have to end here today by asking, am I part of that flock? Has God opened your eyes to see that Jesus is the only shepherd of souls? You may say, I've never come to receive that truth. I've never come to believe that. The fact that he died and rose from the dead is something that I've never come to embrace as being important for me, ultimately. There's just one thing for you here to do, and that is to come to the shepherd of your souls. To come and to seek him and to know that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin on the cross. He rose from the dead in victory over death, and he is your shepherd. Now you can run away from him, or you can come to him, but he is your shepherd, and this is what he's done for you. He's laid down his life for you. If you will respond in faith, your orphan soul will find its shepherd, the shepherd, and your heart will be filled with the wonder and praise of God. Has God opened your eyes to this truth about who Jesus is? If he has, Let's just think of this as we leave today. We are more blessed than if we were blind from birth and healed. To see that Jesus Christ is the sole shepherd, it's more blessed than if we were healed of our blindness. In fact, we have been healed of our blindness, haven't we? Our soul blindness has been taken away when we come to see who Jesus is. If you've come to realize that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he alone is the shepherd of your soul, then you're no longer an orphan. And we should rejoice. And let's do that together. Let's stand as we sing in response to what we've seen.